0: You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org. So, we're going to start off by watching a little video clip.
1: Several years ago, we had an art show at our church, and people brought in all kinds of sculptures and Paintings and we put them on display and there was this one piece that had a quote from Gandhi in it and lots of people found this piece compelling They'd stop and sort of stare at it and take it in and reflect on it But not everybody found it that compelling somewhere in the course of the art show Somebody attached a handwritten note to the piece and on the note they had written Reality check he's in hell Gandhi's in hell he is and someone knows this for sure, and and felt the need to let the rest of us know, will only a few select people make it to heaven? And will billions and billions of people burn forever in hell? And if that's the case, how do you become one of the few? Is it what you believe, or what you say, or what you do, or who you know, or something that happens in your heart? Or do you need to be initiated, or baptized, or take a class, or converted, or being born again? How does one become one of these few? And then there is the question behind the questions, the real question, what is God like? Because millions. And millions of people were taught that the primary message, the center of the gospel of Jesus, is that God is going to send you to hell unless you believe in Jesus. And so what gets subtly sort of caught and taught is that Jesus rescues you from God. But what kind of God is that, that we would need to be rescued from this God? How could that God ever be good? How could that God ever be trusted? And how could that ever be good news this is why lots of people want nothing to do with the christian faith they see it as an endless list of absurdities and inconsistencies and they say why would i ever want to be a part of that see what we believe about heaven and hell is incredibly important because it exposes what we believe about who god is and what god is like what you discover in the bible is so surprising unexpected and beautiful that whatever we've been told or taught The good news is actually better than that, better than we could ever imagine. The good news is that love wins.
0: So lots of you will be familiar with Rob Bell and his book, Love Wins, which uh, tackled some of these great questions about hell and about what happens uh, when we die. And I think it's just a really lovely uh, way that he communicates in terms of asking some of those questions. And uh, where we're at today is obviously we're in the middle of this series, aren't we, where we're thinking about judgment as a theme. So we had uh, Rob Tricky, not Bell, kicking us off at the start of the month, uh, thinking about the wrath of God in the Old Testament. Last week, Mark was talking about sin and justice. And today, I'm talking about hell, and then next week, we've got Dave Parr from Oasis Waterloo coming to help us think about crime and punishment. So, it's been quite the month, and um, yeah, I've enjoyed it. So, one of the things that Mark did is he distributed a survey to get people's views on hell and, and judgment basically, lots of, lots of different things around that, not just hell and judgment. And so, these are the questions, the results. Then, um, are, we were 18 people, so not everyone in the church, but you know, hopefully, sort of fairly. Indicative of, of people's views. So uh, if we have the first one up. So the first question was, Do you believe in the existence of hell? So we can see it. You know, if you can see it, it's a bit small. But um so most people, yes, a lot of people not sure, some people no. Next question: wh- who do you believe ends up in hell? Um, and we've got a big mix there, haven't we? So most people, I think entire it says it's entirely up to God. Some people think nobody. Some people think those who choose to go there. Some people think non-Christians. And then finally, the um, next question, so to what extent do you fear the following? Um, So a huge mix there about maybe sometimes what people fear. So some of us not knowing what is beyond death um, or that people that we love might go to hell or um, that you will go to hell yourself or actually sometimes just questioning what we've been taught sometimes to believe about this stuff. So yeah, a nice mix of opinion. And I think that survey and the film clip show why it's important that we look at this topic because some of us don't know what we think. Some of us are scared of hell, scared of people we know and love going to hell, scared that we might do or say the wrong thing that that might mean we end up in hell. And as Rob Bell was saying, what we... Uh, think about what happens after we die impacts who we are, what we think about God is like and therefore what we tell other people about what God is like and of course how we live now. So what we think about life before death hugely shapes, sorry, what we think about life after death hugely shapes life before death. We need to talk about hell. So first I guess a bit of a disclaimer of sorts. So there are hundreds, if not thousands, of years of scholarship and literature around this topic, and what I can't do today is cover all of it. I'm sort of scratched the surface, really. So I just wanted to recommend a few books if this is a topic that you wanted to look into further. Um, so the first one we've mentioned already, Love Wins by Rob Bell, is just a great accessible read for anybody that has got questions about um, maybe some of the traditional views on heaven, how what we've been brought up to believe. The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis is a, an old classic, it's an allegory, it's like a novel that was written about um, a guy who gets a bus from hell to heaven and in it it just raises lots of interesting points about hell and heaven as well. And then Surprised by Hope by Tom Wright is a very um, comprehensive, quite meaty theological look at, I guess, our future hope. And then my personal favorite, which has really helped me in the preparation for this, or they all have, but this particularly um, is a book called Her Gates Will Never Be Shut by Bragiasak. And that's, again, a really detailed theological look at um, the scriptural mentions of hell and what, what some of them might mean. So yeah, do check those out. I'm not going to cover everything. And I'm also not going to give you the right answer. So it would be great, wouldn't it, if I'd said, it's all right, everyone. I've gone, I've read all the books, and here's the answer. Um, It's not like that. And faith isn't like that, is it? So I think it's just good for me to sort of say that um, at the start so you don't have expectations that you're going to walk away going, I'm all sorted now with what I think about that. Because I'm still learning as well. And to be honest, we don't know, do we, for sure. We can't ever 100% say that we'll know. I think it was Rowan Williams who said that theology is searching for the least stupid thing that you can say about God. And so I guess that's that's kind of my goal all the time, but particularly today, uh, maybe I will share with you the least stupid things that I can say about hell. So we have thought a little bit about what our church might think about hell, but I think it's also... Um, good to try and summarize, I guess what are the main views theologically speaking about hell in Christianity as a tradition as a whole, So when I use words like theology or theologically speaking i 'm really just saying words or thoughts about God. so the word "theology comes from two Greek words: Theos, which means God and logos, which just means word or message so we 're all theologians, we all have theology because we all speak and think words about God, so that 's what we mean when we say that okay so i 'd say there 's probably three main views that you can pull out of tradition, and all of these views in some way have a bit of a a scriptural backing. So let's look briefly at what those views are. So the first one, these are interesting words, infernalism. Um, So that's the belief that hell is a place that's populated by those who sort of refuse salvation or who didn't believe in God during their lifetime on the earth. And there's a bit of difference then about what happens to those people, but um, the common belief within that branch is that they are in a place of eternal conscious torment. And a little myth to dispel within this view um and, and i don 't know this is sort of my view, I think as a, as a sort of growing up as a kind of new Christian that hell was like this kind of weird little town that where everything was red and on fire, and the devil was like the mayor of hell, like so that when you got there, he was there with his like pitchfork and horns going, Hey, welcome to hell i 'm Satan, and I run things around here that is there 's no scriptural <laughs> evidence for that at all that 's a weird mix of like Greek mythology with probably a couple of bad films thrown in there. Um, So yeah, that's just not, there's there's no backing to that at all. So that's Infernalism. So the second one is Annihilationism, which is a bit of a tongue twister. And this view argues that death is the end of existence for those who don't believe. So that body and soul, if you like, are completely destroyed or extinguished. And if somebody doesn't believe, um, they don't enter into eternal life. They just cease to exist. Okay, So that's, that's that view. And some people like that because actually they see that as a little bit more compassionate in some ways. You know, that... Rather than you know, sending someone to be tortured eternally, they just cease to exist. Um, that in some ways, make people think that God, that's a kinder of, kind of way. Um, yeah, I won't say why I think about that. Um, and then the third and final one, universalism. So this is what Rob Bell got accused of when Love Wins came out, that everyone was like, oh, he's a universalist. And it's kind of used as a bit of an insult sometimes in Christianity. So it's the view that hell doesn't exist, or if it does, um, it, it's, it's temporary and it has a particular purpose. But we'll get, we'll get on to that. So, it's the view, basically, that everybody ends up in heaven, regardless of personal faith or belief. And within that view, some believe in this idea of what they call ultimate redemption. So, there's this kind of sort of cleansing fire or kind of like a purgatory or a holding place that refines us and always gets us ready so that we can experience heaven. But ultimately, everybody ends up there one way or another would be the universalist view. And I guess it's really important to say, like I mentioned, that All those opinions differ even within those branches of views. So um, people have different things, different views even within them. And actually, you could argue that all of them in some way have some kind of scriptural basis. You could find verses that seem to prove each of those views as correct. So is there one that's right and one that's wrong? Well, as usual, sadly, it's not (laughs) not quite as simple as that. So I think, again, looking at some more background context will help us try to understand maybe some of those Bible verses that we uh, think are talking about hell and have shaped our understanding of what we believe um, as hell. So, Gehenna. Um, The word used for hell in the New Testament is used 12 times, and it's almost exclusively by Jesus. In fact, the only time that it's mentioned that, that the word is used outside of Jesus is in the book of James when it talks about the tongue which actually is a whole other preach, isn't it? Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's always, almost always Jesus that uses this word. And Gehenna literally means valley of Hinnom. Um, so the G-E is the valley and the Hinnom, but is, is, the Henna bit is Hinnom. And that was an actual place. It was a valley that ran along the south and the west side of Jerusalem. And Gehenna itself has a really interesting history, not for particularly good reasons. So in really ancient times, it was associated associated with child sacrifice. Um, There was a purging, refining, a destruction during the reign of Josiah. And in more recent New Testament times, some scholars say it was essentially the city rubbish dump. So uh, this eternal fire burned to consume all the waste. And wild animals fought over dead bodies and animals. So if you couldn't afford a burial, you were thrown in Gehenna. Um, because obviously barrels were quite expensive, tombs, things like that. If you couldn't afford that, you could be thrown outside um, in Gehenna. So uh, when we understand phrases like wailing and gnashing of teeth, it kind of, kind of makes sense when you think about a rubbish dump full of um pretty nasty stuff and a fire that burned, uh, not eternally um because it was just there forever, but because there was always rubbish to essentially burn. So what can we draw from that? Well, I think maybe it takes us back to another question, another theme, doesn't it, about how we read the Bible? And I know that's something that we've looked at um, before in different ways, but what we do with, with Jesus' words there. So when Jesus spoke about Gehenna, was he describing, you know, a literal place that people knew and were familiar with so that they could um, understand the, the sort of shocking nature of what he was saying? Um, I think, yeah, maybe. Was it another kind of parable or metaphor? Was it supposed to shape our theology around the afterlife for generations to come? I think probably not. Um, But I think there's some other key things that is good for us to know about Gehenna. So in all the times that Jesus uses the word, he's always, without exception, talking to religious people. So he talks to his disciples, religious leaders of the time, scribes, Pharisees and Jewish people. It was never used when talking to those who were unbelievers or who are exploring faith. So I think for me, instantly that's a reminder to never assume that we know who's in and who's out, um, or to never perceive ourselves as righteous as somebody else as not. Often, Jesus' harshest warnings and rebukes were to those who claimed to be uh, religious and, and righteous. and can? Christians justify using hell as a warning for unbelievers or as motivation for evangelism. No, I don't think that we can. So turn or burn, megaphones in the street telling people to repent or else. Um, In my view, they have no biblical basis or justification. Um, That's an incorrect interpretation um, when we look at how Jesus uses the word and who he talks to. And like with everything at the time of Jesus, different Jewish rabbis, so Jesus was a Jewish rabbi and there were other Jewish rabbis that had different interpretations of scripture. And um, they all, again, had different interpretations and understandings of the concept of Gehenna and its relation to the afterlife. Um, So this is a, a quote from Brad Gersack. So they did relate Gehenna to afterlife judgment, but any penalty was justly limited in duration and scale according to one's crime and often with a view to rehabilitation. Uh, so this relates to the earlier use of Gehenna in Josiah's time, maybe when a purifying or refining or a cleaning of sorts took place. So interesting, could this I, could this concept of hell actually be this place of, of healing and restoration and refining until maybe God's kingdom sort of comes in its fullness at the very end of things? Right. Yeah, I think maybe. And that thought links to a, a particular passage, which is always one that I've struggled with a little bit when it comes to hell, because you read it and you're like, well... It's Jesus talking, it seems quite clear. So this is the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. Um, I'll read that passage. It starts at at 31 if you want to follow it along. So Matthew 25, uh, the sheep and the goats. So this is, um, uh, yeah, Jesus talking. So when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So it seems pretty clear, doesn't it? Judgment, separation, eternal punishment or eternal life. So there's some things to note about this passage. Firstly, it's in a series of parables. So it may not be a clear parable in itself, but it comes after two other parables and uses the sheep and goats as a metaphor. So again, parable, metaphor, maybe not meant to be taken literally. But if we shouldn't take it literally, what should we take from it? Simply, I think the core message is that what happens now and in this life is important, that we have a calling and a mandate to feed the hungry, to welcome the stranger and visit those in prison. We'll come back to that later on. Secondly, two Greek words used for the phrase "eternal punishment um, Eon." Collazo. So eon has several meanings. One is an age or a period of time and another refers to like an intensity of experience. And collazo is a term borrowed from horticulture, so it actually refers to the the pruning and the trimming of branches of a plant so it can flourish. So depending on your translation then, eternal punishment or eon collazo could actually mean a period of pruning or an intense um, experience of correction. So not forever, not torture, this idea of restoration, um, yeah, correction, help, healing. And that might be the correct meaning, and I think we need to consider that. What's also striking for me about this passage is how it reminds us that Jesus is king on a throne, and one commentator I was reading notes how actually if you've got a big field full of um, sheep and goats, it's actually not that easy to see, to tell them apart, and that we need a trained person, you know, somebody that knows what they're doing, somebody that could spot and distinguish, and God is that. He has that expertise. We can trust that God knows what he's doing, that he's a fair and a righteous judge, But it does make us aware, too, that there is a a judgment that will take place. There's a separation. Distinctions have to be made between what is good and what is evil. Um, Tom Wright says it like this. Judgment, the sovereign declaration that this is good and to be upheld and vindicated, and that is evil and to be condemned is the only alternative to chaos. One of the things that's really struck me as I have read up on all of this, I think, is the significance of choice within judgment. I think when I think about it, I think of almost those as these passive poor people that are just being judged and we've almost got nothing to do with it. Um, But that's, again, not really come out of the, the reading that I've done. So C.S. Lewis, I was explaining, wrote this novel about how this allegory called The Great Divorce and um, in it where he gets a bus from hell to heaven and the novel's about that journey but it's also about what happens when he gets there, about the conversations that he has and um, I'd, yeah, I'd really encourage you to read it, it's a really interesting take. Two particular encounters that he has were people with people who made the choice not to walk fully, I guess, into this new kingdom because either they couldn't let go of something or they refused to accept the way the new kingdom worked. I think God has always interacted with people on earth through consent, hasn't he, through choice. He he allows us to, he gives us free will. If we want to hurt other people, we can do. If we want to choose a path of brokenness and pain, we can do. If we want to hold on to the things that have hurt us, we can do. And if we want to reject we can reject God, we can. We have a choice. Um, and a lot of theologians will write about this idea of choice, that people essentially go where they want to go, that there's a choice involved in that. And this is a quote from The Great Divorce. Everyone who wishes it does. Never fear. There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. God's not going to force us or anyone into doing anything that we don't want to do, because that's who he is and that's how he works. And linked to that, I guess, I think another thing that sort of helps us think about this point is, is another passage in the Bible. So this is from Luke 16, and it's the rich man and Lazarus, which people might be familiar with. And again, um, it's a passage which maybe looks like it should shape our understanding of, of the afterlife. So this is Luke 16, 19 to 31. There was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So you can see again, can't you, how some of that might shape some of our um, traditional understandings of of hell. And again, let's dig a little deeper and and note a few important things. Again, um, in terms of biblical, types of biblical literature, this is a parable. So again, that should shape the way that we interpret it and the way that we understand it. And there are lots of references here that are essentially pointing towards Jesus and resurrection. And so some of it maybe was kind of alluding to that. Lazarus and the rich man are essentially in the same place, they're both in uh, Hades, but they're experiencing it differently. So the rich man is in torment, Lazarus isn't. So if we consider this idea of a sort of temporary place of healing and restoration in the afterlife, the rich man is finding this difficult, it's torture, it's torment to him. Why is that? Why is Lazarus experiencing it differently differently? I think because he can't accept the new order of things. So if you read the text twice, the rich man still asks Lazarus to essentially serve him. He sees Lazarus as somebody that is beneath him, not as worthy as him. That he's there essentially to do whatever he asks and whatever he needs. First he wants water, then he wants Lazarus to go and mourn his family. But this isn't how this new kingdom works. Jesus' kingdom is one where these hierarchies are destroyed, where the lowly are lifted up, where the excluded are included. And they're now in the same place, equals, but this rich man can't see it or accept it. And so he experiences this place as torment and agony, a fire um, that he needs calling from. Perhaps the chasm, this great separation, um, was actually the condition of, of his own heart. It reminds me of a verse from 2 Corinthians 2, 15 to 16. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death to the other an aroma that brings life the same thing experienced differently depending on who we are the condition of our hearts and the choices that we make to some this new kingdom is going to be a pleasing aroma to others it's going to feel like hell and i'd said about this idea of potentially if um, you know one view about hell being temporary, if it does um, exist, perhaps it is there to reveal to us the truth of things, the reality of this new kingdom, this new city. And we might have a choice at that point to either accept that truth or reject it. But ultimately, it's our choice. Will the rich man stay in a place of torment forever? If he wants to. I think if he's unable to accept the truth as it's fully revealed to him in death. So once we make that choice, is it forever um, which is a really good question, isn't it? You know, you see these passages and they seem to talk about this eternal, you know, the fact that once it, once you're there, you're there, you can't get out of it. And I, I don't think that's the case, having um, having looked into it. So Brad G. Sack's book, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, is titled after a particular verse in, in Revelation, which is a slightly bonkers book at the end of the Bible that's sort of seen as a, a prophetic vision, I guess, of a final judgment. What happens when everything will finally be put right and evil will be destroyed forever? And I think that phrase itself is is beautiful isn't it her gates will never be shut and gates are designed to keep people in or out aren't they but even in this final new city uh, the gates are open they never close people are free to enter in if they would like to god always keeps the light on always keeps the door open in case we choose to come home uh, one of the problems i guess with this kind of argument as well you know around the concept of choice is that we have this limited understanding at the moment, don't we, of of how things are. Um, Scripture seems to point to this idea of death being this sort of unveiling, the full revealing of things as they truly are. In fact, the word apocalypse, which we associate with, again, many zombie movies and um, when everything will kind of be destroyed at some point at the end, the end of the world, um, it simply just means an unveiling. It's like a veil being lifted um so apocalypse i guess the end of life the end of everything is when things will just fully be revealed uh, 1 corinthians 13:12 says for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror dimly then we shall see face to face now i know in part then i shall know fully even as i am fully known And Paul writes this in his letter to the Corinthians. And Corinth at that time was famous for producing some of the most amazing sort of bronze mirrors at the time. So this would have been a a, a thing that was familiar to people at the time. But even they couldn't quite get the clarity in the mirror that we get today. So we look in the mirror and actually we see pretty clearly, don't we? But then it would have been this sort of like slightly faded, murky. It's a bit like what happens to my mirror when I don't clean the house for a few weeks. Not that that ever happens. But yeah, you can't quite see. It's dark, it's faded, it's dusty. Um, But one day we will the mirror will be cleaned when I do the housework and we will see um, in full and so yeah our view of things at the moment is like this um, but one day we will see in full we'll see everything as it really is we'll have all the information I guess and we can make our choice so it seems that our failure to accept the new way of things can be a barrier to us being fully able to walk into this new kingdom our reluctance maybe to forgive others or let hurts go can blind our vision when it comes to seeing things as they fully are our reluctance to deal with our own crap essentially the stuff that we've done to others and the stuff that's been done to us gets in the way and one day we'll see it in full and we'll have to face it and of course that's going to be hell so why not start now? <laughs> why not uh, live more as we were meant to live so that we can be more helpful and loving and kind to those around us? Knowing some of this stuff motivates me to um, let go of stuff, to forgive people, to be the best person I can be, to spend more time in quiet and prayer so God can reveal some of my blind spots, to treat others around me with, with more compassion, to be careful with the words that I use, knowing that they, can, um, they have huge power okay so yeah we are nearly there a few a few i guess personal thoughts really and um again maybe another disclaimer it's okay if you don't agree with what i've said and i know that there's probably loads of questions that this raises perhaps more so than than answers and that's that's okay that's a good thing that's kind of that's kind of the point so some of this is going to be just you know what i think and i think what i What I've come to to believe is that if there is a hell, I believe that it must be temporary. It must be restorative, refining, redemptive and purifying. It must have a purpose because that's what God is like. I can't align a God of love, uh, of my experience um, of God, with a God who throws people in essentially an eternal torture chamber. It just, it doesn't align. And throughout scripture, there's this pattern of any kind of sort of discipline or punishment that comes from God being Uh, as this ultimate purpose of restoring people, um, of helping people back to him, into relationship with him. God isn't vengeful or angry or punishing. God is forgiving and kind and healing. And everything that he does has this overarching theme of restoring people back into relationship with him, of allowing people to live life in all its fullness, which um, is the kind of eternal life that can start right now, not at some point in the future or after we've lived. And I think as well, for me, there's something about um, punishment doesn't really work. It doesn't achieve anything. So to put somebody in a place where they're just being tortured or tormented, I'm not sure what the fruit of that is, um, you know, what that achieves. So um, when I was at school, probably in like, I think year 10, um, I'd, I went through a really bad year where I was just sitting in the sort of playground, I guess, with my friends and this girl, and there'd been a, a rumor that had been spread about something I'd said about someone's brother, you know, sort of that sort of school you know you guys get it on the back row. Right? like people say stuff and there's all this drama and yeah and this girl just came up to me and just started hitting me in the face just started punching me in the face and it was just a horrible horrible moment and um the consequences of that were that she she was charged by the police with abh she was suspended and it led to just weeks and weeks of just hell at school where people were either taking her side or my side and um, yeah it was horrible, and it kind of ruined my my sort of school life at that point and um I just went to a real place of anger and bitterness towards her for what she 'd done and it it just totally corrupted my heart and made me a very bitter, angry person and everything I was sort of obsessed about thinking about how I was going to get my revenge on this girl who was in my year. And GCSE results, they arrived, and um, things worked out all right for me, but for her, they didn't. And she'd failed a couple of her GCSEs, and she wasn't going to get, I think, into the college that she wanted to get into. And uh, I'm not proud of this, but I walked away seeing her in tears and just thinking, good, you deserve that. And in that moment, it felt, it felt pretty good. And then um, at the end of the week, my friend had a party, sort of end of year party, and um, I knew this girl was going to be there. And uh, this was my moment for revenge. So uh, my friend left her mobile phone, and I knew that this other girl's number would be in it. So while everybody else was busy, I nicked the phone, got her number, and then I went into a, a room in the house, and I started sending really nasty messages to this girl, saying that basically she'd you know, got what she deserved, and now her life was going to be ruined. And it, it was just an awful thing to have done and then it didn't make me feel any better (laughs) I I got home and I was like I just feel awful I feel dirty and I know what I've done is really wrong and I can't take that stuff back and um, again uh, it all sort of carried on for a few weeks and months but eventually when we were both probably about a year older and I'd gone to one college and she'd gone to another we ended up having a conversation through a mutual friend and we Describe the experiences that we'd had uh, to each other. So she explained why she'd come up to me and done that, and it was all linked to actually a personal experience that she'd gone through. So I'd been accused of saying something about somebody, and that linked into something that was very painful for her. So she reacted to it. Um, she described what it was like to be arrested, to be fingerprinted, to have a mugshot taken, you know, and how frightening that was. And it helped me understand her perspective a little bit more. And we, we resolved things. We made friends and we decided to let it go. And after that moment, we walked down the street of our local town together and everybody knew that we hated each other. So to see us walking down the street, laughing, talking, chatting, and we actually became friends after that, just people were literally staring with mouths open. And that gave me this sense of healing and restoration. And we were both able to move on. When you have the chance to get your revenge on somebody, it's never what you think it's going to be, it doesn't work, what works, what heals you, what helps you move on, is genuinely this sense of, of restoration, of redemption, and I think that it helps to see hell in that way, maybe some people do deserve hell, I know there's been things I've done where, that are deserving of punishment, but does that punishment do anything to change my behaviour, or change anyone's behaviour, I'm not sure that it does, but love I think changes people, uh, restoration, understanding, dialogue, those are the kinds of things that I think bring healing. And there is a hell that I do believe in, and I will finish with this. So I believe that when two people in the same household, in full-time jobs, sometimes more than one job, still don't have uh, enough money to pay their bills and put food on the table for their kids, When at the same time, 1% of the wealthiest people in the world get 83% of all global health, that is hell. When one in five people in the UK live below the poverty line, when there are areas in Bath that are in the top 10% of deprivation in the UK, when 1.2 million children in the UK live in shoe poverty, which means they don't have the right shoes, shoes that fit or are suitable for their needs, that is hell. When two women every week are killed by their partner or ex-partner in England and and Wales and police receive over a hundred calls every hour, a hundred calls every hour related to domestic abuse. When knife crime is at its highest level since records began, that is hell. When our schools are so underfunded teachers have to buy their own equipment and children with learning difficulties don't get the support that they are legally entitled to, that is hell when average wildlife populations have dropped by 60% in just 40 years, or the fact that carbon emissions from energy use are rising at the fastest rate since 2011, when two-thirds of extreme weather events in the last 20 years were caused by human-influenced climate change, that is hell. When almost one-fifth of people in the UK, that's over 9 million people, say that they are always or often lonely. When one in four people will experience a mental health problem. When half of all referrals to children and adolescent mental health teams take four months just to get an appointment. That is hell. So I believe in hell. I believe in hell on earth because I've seen it. I've contributed to it. I've experienced it. And with God in me, I will do everything that I can every minute I have with every breath in me to eradicate hell from the face of this earth as long as I am on it. Rob Bell says it like this. We need a loaded, volatile, adequately violent, dramatic, serious word to describe the very real consequences we experience when we reject the good and true and beautiful life that God has for us. We need a word that refers to the big, wide, terrible evil that comes from the secrets hidden deep within our hearts all the way to the massive society-wide collapse and chaos that comes when we fail to live in God's world, God's way. And for that, the word hell works pretty well. Let's keep it. So let's not reject the good and true and beautiful life that God has for us. Let's do our very best to live in God's world, God's way. Let's accept that we don't really know for sure what happens when we die. Let's do the tough work of dealing with our own stuff, our pain, our brokenness. Let's bring heaven to earth in every way we can, to everyone we can, everywhere we can. Let's focus on life before death, not life after death. Let's trust that God is a good, fair, and loving judge who heals, restores, and redeems, and that everything that he does is geared around our wholeness and restoration. Let's know that right now we only see in part, but one day we will see in full. And let's not live in fear, but in absolute trust and hope that one day every eye will see, every knee will bow, every tear will be wiped away, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. His gates are never shut, never shut, ever. You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org.